Defendants within the criminal justice system are separated into two separate yet unequal categories, Caucasians and people that have financial resources to afford adequate representation and disadvantaged people of color who don't. These are their stories. In previous episodes, I've given you a general overview of my case of injustice. I've talked about the arrest, the murder, and we're up to the point where I went to jail and I met the guy that lied on me. And so today I just want to get into more of that, uh, what happened while I was in jail. Because I didn't just go straight to trial. It took me practically two and a half years before I actually got to trial. It's the day that I got to jail and I seen the young man and I was able to ask this young man if he really thought that I'd done something wrong. I'd done some, a crime with him and he shook his head and he walked off. I know I told you about that, but let's pick up right there, okay? So I'm in jail and then this is, I've told you about the dog kennel that they converted to the jail. It's a 10-man cell, right? So we've talked about that. I've told you about the 20 people that they had in there that they double up in these, these cells so that the, the, the cell across the hall or right directly across the guy that lied on me would be open so that I can go into that cell. Now, that's the reason why I'm telling you that. Because remember, we talked about the games that they play. Well, little do I know, this is another game that they're finna play with me. They made it to the point where they would move everybody around so that I can be in the cell directly across from this young man. Okay? Now just think, out of 20-some people in a, in a jail with only 10 cells, why would this number one cell be available for Mr. Graves and Mr. Graves only and he's directly across from the young man that lied on him? Just, just think about that for a minute and I'll fill it in for you. So when I seen the young man and it startled me that he was across from me, but I, I asked him because I wanted to know, you know, because I didn't know if he was crazy. I didn't know anything about him. So I wanted to know if he really thought that I had done a crime with him. And he shook, looked at me and shook his head no. And I asked him, and I'm, I think I've told you guys, that I asked him, hey man, can you please, for my mother and my children's sake, can you tell these people the truth? And that's when he shook his head and he walked off. Now that's all that was said. Three weeks later, we had a bond hearing. This is when we have to go in front of the judge and the judge decide to set me an amount of a bond so that I can make bail and be with my family until the trial. But <laughs> that's not the way it worked, man, because no judge wanted in the papers that a judge let suspected murderer go during an election year. And this was during an election year. See how the politics are taught getting involved? This was during the election year. I never forget my attorney at the time. His name was Mr. DeGarren. Mr. DeGarren was about five foot six, five foot seven, an older white man, come with an impeccable reputation in the criminal justice field. He was the lawyer. Attorneys would get, and prosecutors would get scared of him when he walks into the courtroom. He had that air about him. And my friend had hired him to come and check on me to see what this case was about. 
So I never forget when he came up there the first time to meet me and he started talking to me about, you know, interviewing me about the case. What did I know? What did I didn't know? Et cetera, et cetera. And we was going to get ready for this hearing that was coming up. And I remember he stopped when we started talking about the hearing and he looked at me. He said, I need to prepare you for something. And I said, what's that? He said, this judge is not going to rule in your favor. He said, it's a political year. And, those, and there's no judge that's going to let a, a uh, suspected murderer go in an election year. So I just want to prepare you for that. And, and I, I took that with a grain of salt because I feel like, you know, I'm innocent. So going to court and they hear that I'm innocent and they see there's no evidence to the contrary, I at least get a bond. So I thought. Three weeks later, we get into the court for this bond hearing. And it just amazed me how far law enforcement would go to, prefer, to preserve the theory of a case. When we got to this bond hearing, there was absolutely no evidence against me as to why they, was, they should keep me in jail. So what they did is the night before the bond hearing, they talked to a jailer, Mr. Sean Elridge, young guy who, who really admired law enforcement, wanted to be a police officer, but he was a jailer at this time. And they talked to him about the night that he booked me into the room, into the jail. And they wanted to know if he had heard anything that I said. Now listen, this is three weeks later. So up until this point, Mr. Eldridge never said anything to anyone that he heard me say something that would implicate me in this, this crime. Well, the night before my bond hearing, Mr. Eldridge wrote out a statement saying that three weeks ago, he overheard me on the intercom implicating myself in this crime. Now notice, he didn't tell anyone this. When he had to give someone an aspirin that night, he wrote it down in the log so that the jailer coming on would know what, he, what all he had done. But if for some reason, he never wrote anything down, called anyone, talked to anyone about this supposedly statement he heard me make incriminating myself. Now, why would he do that? Well, because when we got to the hearing, that's absolutely no evidence that you can present to ask the judge to keep me in court, I mean in jail. So they had to come up with some evidence that would justify keeping me in jail without a bond. So this jailer, Mr. Elridge, comes to the court and testifies that he overheard me on the intercom making incriminating statements with Robert Carter, the young man that lied on me. Now remember, all I asked him was would he please tell the truth? But I, 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 I told you in the previous episode that what you say can and will be used against you. This is the perfect example of that. Because all I asked this man, would he please tell the truth? And he shook his head yes. And from that, it got into the courtroom that I implicated myself in the crime, that I told this man to keep his mouth shut, that I did the job for him and let, him, let them figure out the case. 
You see what I'm saying? It went from, will you tell the truth to all of this other stuff? Because they told me what I say can and will be used against me. I didn't take that serious because I was speaking truth and I wanted them to hear the truth because I felt like if I told the truth, they heard the truth, I could go home. Well, it took me two and a half years first to get to trial, right? Along the way, there was so many games that was being played. That was the first game, the one that denied me the bond by lying and said they ever heard me make incriminating statements. The second game is when they arrested Mr. Carter's wife. And the reason why they arrested Mr. Carter's wife is because they knew Mr. Carter was lying. But they want him to continue to tell the lie. So they went and arrested his wife and charged her with capital murder. No evidence. Just charged her out the blue with capital murder. And then two months later, they let her go. On a personal recognizance bond. Told her to continue to move forward and don't look back. Don't even think about this case. Because the statute of limitation did not run out. All right, now remember this. Because they turned, what they were doing is they were scaring her off for testifying on my behalf because they knew she knew the truth. So they scared her up. Now they made her a, a non-credible witness. So she came and testified that her husband and her cousin didn't know any, each other. It would make her, they, now they've, they've got it to make her look like she's lying. So, so they, they, they scare away this, this key witness who could have testified that her husband didn't even know me by charging her with capital murder. Okay, so I lose a witness that. This is all while I'm in jail. Now, also while I'm in jail, these two and a half years, they have convicted Mr. Carter. They moved him from the jail, finally took him to court and convicted him with capital murder. Uh, my attorneys didn't attend the trial to know what strategy his defense attorneys used, what the prosecutors were saying. See, all this could have helped me if my attorneys then would have been there to know exactly what they were saying. But because they wasn't, they allowed them to now flip what they were saying about Mr. Carter in his trial and use it against me in my trial. You understand know what I'm saying? These are games that are being played. Everybody, they're playing to win. Then no one, I never once talked to you about them seeking the truth. If you notice that, I've talked about the games that they play to win. Okay, so now two and a half years, Mr. Carter now has been convicted. His wife had been charged with capital murder and released on bond. And here I am, still trying to get to trial. Still begging these people to take me to trial. I'm begging. I want her to go to trial. Finally, after two and a half years, my attorney come to me and said, they set a trial date. And I could tell he was so nervous because one of the things he told me, and I'll never forget about an innocent case. He said, Mr. Graves, the reason why I'm nervous is because the hardest case to defend is the case of an innocent man. He said, I'd rather have 10 guilty cases than one innocent case.
because it is the most difficult case to prove. And he was really letting me know without telling me that this is gonna be hard and that we just can't depend on you being innocent, okay? I didn't get all those messages because my mind was focused on the fact that I was innocent and I just needed to get to court. I don't even see all the games that they were playing while I'm waiting, right? I don't see the accumulation of all these things that's gonna have an effect on the outcome. But, but because they were skilled at this, had been doing this for years, they knew the game they were playing and they knew that I was looking right at them and couldn't tell what they were doing. They had someone that was just green when it came to the criminal justice system and they did everything they could to use that to their advantage. When I got to trial, and this, 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 this is the part where everything started changing on me. I start waking up because now when we get to trial, they moved my trial down to Angleton, Texas because we was trying to get a change of venue for uh, a fair trial, right? There had been a lot of publicity in the small town that we were, we were in and we were petitioning for a change of venue so I could have access at a fair trial. Fair enough, they granted this. And so we moved down to a place called Angleton, Texas that comes with, it, with its own racial history. But once again, I don't know. I'm just totally naive. I'm just focused on the fact that I'm innocent. I don't care what they're doing around that. I'm innocent and that would never change, you know? And so when we get down there and we finally get to Vardar, what I come to find out is that while we were there, the prosecutor had started coming down there and being in the media every day. This is another trick. Every day, telling potential juries who were watching the news that this man that they had brought to their town was guilty. So by the time we get to Vardar, practically everybody in that room had seen the prosecutor on the evening news. So this is just tainting my jury pool. Right? He started trying to win his case in the public. I go to my attorney and tell my attorney what's going on. My attorney, who doesn't have any experience, trying to play by the rules, trying to be fair all around, says to me, hey, we'll just do our talking when we get in the courtroom. <sighs> oh, come on, man. He's winning his case in the public and we're just gonna wait till we get in the courtroom before we respond? You, you, so, so you see this is not, this is not rocket science, right? Because this man is, is, is telling people a horrible, horrible story, a horrible lie about a man, and now I have to come and clean it up. A young black man in a criminal justice system that is actually ran by non-white people, non-black people, right? So when we get there, by this time, we're doing the Vardai, and we have to put each potential juror up on the witness stand to ask them how do they feel about me being in this position today. At least seven out of 10 of the potential jurors that would get up there and be examined would all say, when my attorney would ask them, what do you think about my client, Mr. Graves, in here today? Seven out of 10. 
said, he must have done something, otherwise you wouldn't have him here. I mean, can you wrap your mind around that? What happened to actual innocent until proven guilty? So I end up going in front of a jury, a jury that I already believed that I had done something. And guess what? This probably won't surprise you, but they didn't look like me. It was only one that looked like me, and they made him the face of the jury, right? Can you imagine that? It is, it is 12 people, 11 of them are white, one is black, and they pick him to lead the jury. Come on, people. You know what that's about. That gave them the green light to do exactly what they wanted to do and make this black man the face of doing it. You know? Because it, it just it didn't make sense to me that here it is, I've lived my whole life in this country and I've never seen 11 white people lining up to follow one black man unless they knew where he was going. So what he didn't realize, the, the black man, is the trick that was played on him. They built him up to be the leader, knowing, knowing all along they was designing this for him to follow. Because he could not be the only person on the jury voting not guilty for this young black man. It would have looked like he couldn't have done his job. So he became my one guilty vote before the trial even started by them electing him as the foreman of the jury. Smooth game, smooth game. You gotta give the, you gotta give the, the, the system credit on knowing how to tap into everyone's emotions, every difference between each individual and use it to their advantage. Particularly if you're the one that happened to be sitting in the cheap seats. And that was me. I watched them use everything different. I watched them take, take, take statements and turn them into facts. I watched these people do everything that they could to secure a conviction. All of these tricks was to secure a conviction. They were not trying to seek the truth. And now I'm in trial. My trial lasts three weeks. Now this is a capital murder trial. It only took three weeks. Two and a half weeks of that was just picking the jury. So that didn't leave hardly any days for the evidence to come into play or lack thereof. It was three days of evidence testimony, as they say. And you know, the, the, the way that works is the prosecutor puts on its evidence, and then the, the defense puts on this evidence, and then the prosecutor can come back and, re, and rebut that, or they can just rest their case. Okay, so, so, so prosecutor put this evidence on, we put our evidence on, the case was rested and given to the juror. The juror, after three weeks of listening to this case, of being picked and listening to this case, went into the back room and in eight and a half hours, they came back and convicted me of capital murder with no evidence. 
right? So it was like so surreal to me that here is, I believe in our system. I've been taught that the criminal justice system in America was the greatest system in the world. And I held on to that because I needed to, because I needed the system to work so that justice could prevail and I could go home. So imagine my world being crushed when they came out of that jury room and found me guilty of a crime I knew absolutely nothing about. I was so exhausted after hearing that ruling. But I digress, let me take you back on that moment when they came out of the jury room for the verdict. So when the jury piles back into the jury box, the judge asks the foreman of the jury to stand up and asked him, have they reached a verdict? The foreman of the jury will speak and say that they have, Your Honor. And then the judge would ask the bailiff to get the uh, verdict, which is written down on a piece of paper from the foreman and hand it to the judge. Right, And so I'm watching this, and I noticed that no juror was looking at me. And I also noticed that at least three of them were crying, right? Didn't feel good to me, just didn't feel good. And in my mind, I kept saying, man, these folks gonna convict me for something I didn't do. Because I was looking at their skin color. And I, was, and I knew just by seeing their skin color that we was just disconnected. And they were not gonna rule in my favor. Because this is a white man over here telling them that this black young black man done something. And they look more like the white man than they do the young black man. Do the math. You know, do the math. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, I remember this. This was not so long ago that all black men and women were going through this. Dred Scott, for example who was fighting for his property. And they said that he didn't even have any rights to fight for his property because he was basically property himself, right? And now here it is playing out right in front of me that I have no rights to my own life. Even though I haven't done nothing, they still gonna execute me or try to execute me because they say I could have done it. Go figure, man. No evidence, no evidence I was at home with my family. I watched all the games being played by the law enforcement, by the DA's office, all to secure a conviction of an innocent man. And so now they just convicted me. And I'm drained, man. I mean, even though I felt it in every fiber of my being that these people who did not look like me were gonna convict me first before they think that I was innocent, still, it was still heartbreaking. It was, it was, it was, it was an out of body experience. I mean, because I believed in our criminal justice system. And I've been waiting on this moment for two and a half years. I just wanted to get to trial. And now I'm at trial and they've convicted me for nothing. And my family, my mother, my children, my siblings are all sitting in the audience watching this play out. And I didn't know what to do. I was just so drained. I just, but I knew I wasn't gonna give up, but I was drained. And to the point where the, the, the DA didn't think I understood 
So the DA jumps up and tells the judge, Judge, I don't think Mr. Graves understand what's going on. I understood, but I couldn't get, jump up and clap for him. He just robbed me of my freedom and possibly my life for something I don't know anything about. And so the judge asked my attorney if he would bring me up to the bench to explain to me what was happening, to make sure that I understood. And so my attorney walked me up to the bench and the judge is looking me in my eyes and he's telling me that the state had just convicted me and sentenced me to death. And at a certain day that there was, the state would uh, schedule an execution day for me and he wanted to know if I understood this. And I heard him, but when I'm looking at him, in my mind, I'm just thinking, this is the devil. It just kept, it just kept saying in my mind, this is the devil. And I just, so when he asked me, do I understand? I just shrugged my shoulders because I knew we was finna fight. You're not just gonna kill me for something I don't know anything about. I wouldn't even do this. I don't have no criminal record like this. I have nothing in my background that would suggest that I was this type of person. I'm not finna just let you take my life without fighting for it. And so the fight began at that moment. We have big problems in our criminal justice system. And it starts with acknowledging that when you have elected officials in the DA's office around this country, 90% to be exact, are white elected officials and have basically no diversity in, in their office, that's a recipe for disaster. That should be, that should be a civil rights issue there. If government is gonna give any funding to any DA's office, in this country, it should come with conditions, such as there has to be a certain percentage of diverse people in this office. Because everyone goes through the courtroom, not just black people, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, and other. They all go through the courtroom, but if justice is only looked at through the lens of everyone white, I mean, you know, I, do I have to finish that? This is why it's so important that we have diversity in our DA's office. Because if we had diversity, this probably wouldn't even happen to me. Now, I, I know that's going out on a limb because just because you have diversity don't mean that everybody's gonna, they're not, they're not gonna come in and do the right things. I get that, I've witnessed that, but I'm saying that at least give the appearance that we're trying to be fair. But we're not even given the appearance of trying to be fair in our criminal justice system. We are playing to win. And, and it's not just on the district attorney's side. It's a defense too. Everybody's playing to win. And guess who, who loses in the end? The pawn sitting there in the chief seat, which happened to be me at the time, right? So <clears throat> I go from a jail cell in two and a half years, I witnessed all type of games being played on me, but that's okay. I'm not baffled. I'm still strong. I still believe in our criminal justice system. I still believe that once I get in that courtroom, the truth come out and I'm gonna go home, okay? I've gone through all of this. Now I'm at the trial. I've witnessed 
people who didn't look like me saying that because I was in the courtroom, I must have done something, but that's okay. That did not shake me because I know that the case still had to be heard and the judge still had to rule, right? Uh, it's naivete, man. Naivete right now is saving my life and my sanity, okay? Because all these things that they were playing on me, these games that they were playing to get me to the courtroom, to get me into that, that cheap seat, to put on this, put on this game show where the DA was the host and the uh, jurors were the contestants. Uh, it, it, was, it just amazes me. It amazes me how in this year that we still have this type of system in place. It is no, it is, it is no different from back when the paddy wagons were invented to go and catch runaway slaves. And then we became law enforcement. And now I'm in the courtroom watching all of this history play out in my life. And I see it, I see it. I see history, I see racism, okay? I see the fact that my life does not matter to a criminal justice system that does not look like me. And it was easier for them to convict me and sentence me to death for a crime I did not commit by playing all the games that they play to win. But now, I'm telling you about the jail. I'm telling you about my trial. But the next episode, we're gonna talk about going to death row. I have some stories to share with you on that. Just gonna blow your mind, the inhumanity that we are allowing to take place behind bars. So stay tuned for the next episode. You've been listening to the Smart Justice Reform Podcast with Anthony Graves. For more information about how you can get involved or support the program, visit anthonybelieves.org. And be sure to subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or whatever streaming media platform you use. I'm Anthony Graves, and I crisscross this globe sharing my story about my injustice. People often come up to me and ask me, what is it that they can do to help? And I tell them there's three things that you can do. Number one, contact your local and state rep. Show up for jury duty when you're summoned. And most importantly, vote.